in the Klingon criminal justice system. The Klingons are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the crew of the Enterprise who investigate crime and Otto von Trapp who prosecutes the offenders. These are their stories. I'm Captain Awesome. And I'm the Triple Hippie. Welcome aboard. Find something to hold on to. There are no seatbelts on this bridge. It was 1991. I was the ripe age of 13. So yeah, I would have been, this would have been the first Star Trek movie I saw in Arizona. This was, uh, let's see, it was 13. Oh, this was the first Star Trek movie I went to see by myself. Ah. I mean, with friends, but like but, I had yeah. to go with my parents. I lived uh, in a little ghetto apartment behind a movie theater and, uh, I, my buddy and I used to go to the movies all the time. And the, the first R rated movie that we snuck in to go see was uh, uh, rising sun with Sean Connery. <laughs> Good stuff. But we also went and saw this movie there. <laughs> we also saw good movies from time to time. Right. Oh man, that was a real bad movie. Um, okay. So when we went and saw this, as I said, I was 13 because the year was 1991. Uh, let's see. It was released. It was a December release. It was another Christmas release, I believe. Yeah. December 6th of 1991. Yeah. Yeah. So this for me was pretty exciting because I really did not. After five, I did not think we were getting a sixth movie. I really thought that the franchise had died a cold death. So when I heard that we're going to have a sixth movie and Nicholas Meyer was going to come back and directed it had very very high hopes for this one and i have to say this this movie met the high expectations well so i went looking for trivia on this one because i was curious obviously and and you know it's kind of what we do uh, and i went to warpedfactor.com and i looked up some of their uh their, you know their 10 things you didn't know about star trek 6 <laughs> the very first paragraph Considered a critical and commercial failure, the poor performance of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, almost ended the film series entirely. <laughs> uh, one piece that I, I read also said that's why uh, Nimoy uh, didn't direct this one, is they're afraid that uh, after the failure of V, it would just tick William Shatner off to have Nimoy take back over again. Uh, yeah, apparently they were so worried about it that they actually talked to his agent about it. And he was like, oh yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on top of that, uh, I guess Harv Bennett kind of had a, had the, um, uh, the prequel oh, kind of in the yes. can, right? So the he wanted Academy. to do the Academy movie, which I have to admit still sounds like a great idea. Uh, the rumor I saw was Ethan Hawke as Captain James T. Kirk and John Cusack as uh, Spock. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> Ethan Hawke and John Cusack. So glad we got the movie we got because the movie that we might have got might not have been as good. Yeah. I, I mean, it's the the whole concept of, of starting over with uh, Starfleet Academy was really more, much more about how do we introduce the new generation, right? Yeah. And I, I think that was a, a really good way to go, especially because at this point, the TNG crew 
uh, or the TNG production team did not want to put them in movies yet. They wanted to squeeze as much blood as they could out of that TV show first. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now, um, I, I guess the reason that they actually did get to make the movie though, is because, uh, Paramount, uh, changed leadership. And when they changed leadership, somebody over at Paramount said, Hey, you know what? This is the 25th anniversary of star Trek. <laughs> we should do something with that. And so this movie was given a, given a shot. Now, before they decided on the undiscovered country and went back to, uh, to Harb Bennett and, uh, uh, you know, got a, a really good script, they, they did ask somebody else for their input first, uh, Walter Koenig. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. Star Trek Six in Flanders Field. Excuse me, in Flanders Fields. Uh, apparently that's the everybody dies scooby-doo ending yeah yeah i just this was something i did not know actually this is something that uh that i just did read today about the that uh he wanted to make a film where basically everyone got wiped out except for mccoy and spock who would be the you know the the two lefts of which honestly would have been an interesting film gotta give it oh sure i you know what as a as a one-hour treatment to uh hand over the reins from one one set of of uh cast to the next and to usher in the the future of tng it could have been really interesting yeah yeah definitely uh as a two-hour movie to try to end the franchise i don't think so that sounds depressing <laughs> as hell they just wanted to hammer home you're not going to see these people in next generation and any crossovers stamp 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 <laughs> now one thing I did find really interesting about this, though, is um, that the the new Paramount boss, uh, Mancuso, he actually went to, to Nimoy and said, hey, you know, do you have an idea for this movie? And Nimoy and, um, uh, oh, Mark Rosenthal. Yes. They got yes. together and they basically wrote Generations, which... <laughs> awesome i mean they ended up making it not too much longer or not too much later so yeah i thought that was just it was just kind of a neat progression for how this movie got made um for those that don't know uh, star trek 6 the undiscovered country is a a rollicking romp through the klingon justice system uh, <laughs> basically uh it, it opens up with uh, a moon exploding and it turns out it's the moon that powers the klingon everything now, um, one thing, one thing yeah. I want to bring up about the explosion, because first of all, they run the credits on this and the credits on this movie are almost like a, a Christmas present in and of themselves. When you see uh, Mark Leonard, Kurtwood Smith, uh, John Shuck, Michael Dorn, all the Star Trek names, you know, are paraded that, you know, you're going to get a glimpse. I'm not a big fan of when people say we're going to make a movie for the fans, but this one, I think they they were doing that just with the uh, uh, the presentation and then the explosion, the awesome uh, music interlude, which was submitted. It wasn't, it was not even a, uh, um, the theme song was a submitted song because <laughs> most of the people that Nicholas Meyer wanted to use refused to work with him. Um, were either mm. busy or just did not want to, you know, uh, uh, due to Star Trek five, they didn't want their, their hands on something else. Um, mm -hmm. But the way that the music comes up to a crescendo, dives back down, comes up to a crescendo, you see Nicholas Myers directed by, and as soon as they stop that song, kink, that explosion happens. 
Yep. One of my favorite beginnings of a movie. Just really, really will. Let's kick this off with some, you know, with something really, really cool. Oh, there's so so much good about this. Um, so yeah, the 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 moon explodes, uh, uh, and, and <laughs> there is a diplomatic incident as the Klingons beg for help. Uh, of course, the Enterprise is the ones who have to go and and be the diplomats because they're the only diplomats in Starfleet, and uh, they. <laughs> Are they fall afoul of a plot to assassinate the president of the Kling or the chancellor of the the Klingon High Council? And after that, uh, we send our guys to prison, do a prison break, and <laughs> then they retire. So, I mean, all in all, this is a great flick. <laughs> yes, this it's it's paced extremely well. There are no slow points in this movie. It's it's either uh, everything in this movie. Uh, pushes it forward now this is also the nicholas meyer edit of the movie reportedly leonard nimoy had his own edit and nicholas meyer used none of it um in fact a lot of the accounts of the director nicholas meyer on this particular film he really steamrolled what he wanted a lot in this film um it will there's a few instances that come up where there's opportunity for compromise and he does not take it <laughs> well in all fairness this was not a contract movie right this was a movie that he was asked to come back and do the 25th anniversary he was asked to come back and really make it his own so he was like all right screw you guys i'm gonna do it my way <laughs> uh, clearly nimoy and shatner have no idea what they're doing so i'm not listening to any of you people <laughs> do you guys remember the best movie you guys made you remember who directed that one yeah, I think it was me. Yeah, yeah I, right. I think I was that guy. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, what, one thing that I read because that explosion that you see, if you were to watch this movie today and you see the explosion that happens at the beginning of the movie, it's not something that you're going to think, oh, yeah, that's a nice special effect. At the time, nobody had seen what they now call the Praxis effect, which has been added to the Death Star blowing up um it's been added to a number of different effects in different movies but it is still referred to as the as the praxis effect the um ripple the two-dimensional ripple going out from a center in and of uh, plasma this effect at the beginning of this movie really kicked it off well because you really had not seen anything like that up to this point hold on an important point we need to get hit there a two-dimensional wave coming out from <laughs> the planet <laughs> I love this movie. Don't get me wrong, but I still, to this day, it bugs me that the USS Excelsior is sitting there and they're all having a good old time. And they're like, captain, there's a wave coming at us. And instead of going up or down, they just <laughs> ride it like a surfboard and it's terrible, but that's a Star Trek problem in general, right? They, they very rarely do they pay attention to the Z axis in any way. <laughs> One of the great weaknesses of a lot of uh, movie heroes also is stopping and looking at things. Mm -hmm. I, I can't, I can't name the number of, of bad things that have happened when heroes have stopped to look at things that they didn't really need to. I do think that Star Trek has a real problem with that too, more than a lot of shows, <laughs> because I mean, there is, there's nothing that says I'm about to get my butt handed to me more than on screen. <laughs> captain they're firing 
put it on screen. But <laughs> but we could just fire. Yeah. <laughs> just I mean, we know what's going on. Yeah, I'm your security <laughs> officer. I'm telling you, they're shooting at us. This is the time to shoot. I want to see it. <laughs> oh. Space exploration is a visual medium, right? Okay. Well, let's go ahead and jump in here. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, the, the story opens up. It opens with the explosion. And then we zoom in on a teacup. Yes. Which I got to admit, I want to I set these teacups. I want like all the teacups. Because apparently, <laughs> as we'll see later in the movie, every ship has their own teacups. <laughs> I like the thing that Sulu is such, not even Picard put a table for his teacup on the bridge right picard yeah, is most is famous for his tea across all of the franchise did not have a tea stand <laughs> this is this is when when sulu calls himself master of this craft that that's what he's mean <laughs> <laughs> i made this place my own <laughs> he did really it was fantastic um i i gotta admit there was something else i didn't notice before um uh, as we see some really terrible acting, I'm sorry to say, uh, he brought Yeoman Rand with him. Yeah, she's now a communications officer, and she's actually the first officer, isn't she? Uh, I, it's tough to tell because she's sitting in the back row, and the only thing she does in the movie is cry. In the episode Voyager flashback, we will explore this particular situation much, much deeper, and I believe... I believe she was first officer. If not, she was second officer. All right. I'm putting that in my notes. We got to check that out when the time comes. Yeah, I, I better be right on that. I know she's in it, but I better be right as far as her rank. Unless I just think it's cool that Grace Lee Whitney got to be in like everything. Yes. I mean, she she never really had any big parts. She had a couple little attempts to kind of branch out a little bit, but really... I mean, she she got taken advantage of by awful people. She got to stand in the yes. background a lot. She cried a lot. And that's about it. Um, unfortunately, in this movie, her crying is terrible. I, I, <laughs> it, it looked like she stubbed her toe or something. It, it was really bad. Um, maybe, maybe she was trying to fake it and she really just didn't care that much. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things that I looked up about this this explosion happening. So that we we zoom in on on uh, on the Excelsior. Sulu's now in command, and they all get hit by the wave coming off of the explosion at Praxis. Uh, one of the things that I looked up about this that I thought was really interesting is um, when Nick Myers was doing the the treatment for this, he said it was really easy because all he did is he sat down and he decided that the Klingons were the Russians and that he wanted to, he he effectively was curious about bringing down the wall in space. And he was like, well, that doesn't really work. So let's talk about Chernobyl instead. So basically Praxis is Chernobyl. Um, Yes. You know, when I was younger, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Now I'm looking at it and I'm like, duh, of course it is. (laughs) Um, So it's, 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 interesting that they kind of set the story that way and set up a what if if the you know when the russians were in trouble with chernobyl they did have to come to us and say hey we're going to need some help well not necessarily us but the international community and say hey we need some help with this this is a really big deal and it's outside of our abilities and, and so one thing i'm sorry go ahead pardon me no i was just going to say and so the international community came came to their their aid and hilarity ensued 
So <laughs> I, I think it's very interesting. That that's how we start this story. And this, this uh, also was a nice tie-in because we're foreshadowing TNG at this point is on its fifth season. Everyone's familiar with Worf and his story. And this helps tie into, yes, we know there's going to be a day that the Klingons and the Federation are much on much more friendly terms. And this is the beginning of that time. Now, I yeah. find it interesting just from a Star Trek geek point of view, we're not worried about the Organians at all. We have just decided the Organians are not going to show up anymore because the only reason uh, uh, Kirk and Corden blast each other out of space uh, a long time ago was the Organians said, we're not going to allow that to happen. You guys are going to do that. You're going to become good friends someday. And, but until then, we're not going to allow you to have any hostilities. So it made sense in discovery. Okay. That war happened before the Organian treaty, but it looks like in this one, the Klingons are pretty convinced that the Organians and, and um, not just the Klingons, but Cartwright and everyone is just convinced that the Organians are just not going to get involved in this. Now that's interesting. The Arganians actually made an appearance in Enterprise as well. Incidentally, while investigating a Klingon waste site. Ah, I don't remember that. I need to go back and watch Enterprise. Yeah, I'm only in in uh, halfway through season one right now. It's it's better than I remembered. I I I really liked it. I honestly, if if they were allowed going to allow me to write something, I'd be writing a. Uh, a um, Malcolm Reed, Captain Malcolm Reed series next week. And I, I, I think there were so many good characters from that, uh, from that show and oh. they were well acted. I want to see an entire series. that's all about trip getting his ass kicked across the galaxy. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, I love trip, but he, he's got a punchable face. What can I say? Why did he have to die? Why? Spoilers. Why <laughs> so all right here's here's my first question um well okay so first off we we advance over to san francisco we have to have the obligatory san francisco shot to talk about going to uh starfleet headquarters now my problem here is in previous movies as well as now five seasons of next gen we've established pretty much what San Francisco looks like that it's this very ultra futuristic <laughs> city with all these big spires and everything. It's really cool. This San Francisco looks like it's been bombed back to the stone age and somebody plopped a little building on it. They show, <laughs> you know, the, the obligatory shot down the, the golden gate bridge and it's all just giant rocks with a little itty bitty building on top. And I'm like, what the hell happened to San Francisco? Like it's just it's all underground, baby yeah but when did that happen because the last movie it was above ground movie before, oh you know what it is the whales the whales uh, the, the whale probe must have broke it that's it that, there we go it's it's they're still rebuilding from the whales <laughs> um so they they do their briefing to talk about what happened um basically the they they call in Kirk and his boys, and they're like, ah, yeah, just go in here, sit down, don't talk to anybody. <laughs> they go in, they sit down, they're like, who are all these guys? There's all these generals and stuff. What's going on? This is this is when this is when Kirk learns that maybe the demotion wasn't that great of it, you know, wasn't as good as maybe <laughs> he hoped. So, of course, you know, the the head of uh 
uh, I forget what his title was. The, the CNC. The CNC. Thank you. Uh, he shows up and he's like, hey, guys, just to let you know, we're about to get started. Here's your special guest. Go. <laughs> and then there's a spotlight that comes up and Spock heads up and everybody's like, whoa, Spock. All right. So I want to pause here for a second. This is clearly a joint chief of staffs meeting, right? Yes. And it is extremely aggressive, extremely militaristic. And I think that one of the, so one of the, the things that I, I was reading about was, so Nicholas Meyer, this is his one big regret. He and Roddenberry sat down to go over the script for this movie. Yes. And Roddenberry was emphatic that this was not a good script. He did not want it to happen this way because there is crazy amounts of racism. There's yes. xenophobic activities. There is over militaristic ideals. You know, all of this is just absolutely anti to everything that Gene stood for. They got into a shouting match and Nicholas basically said, look, you're not actually part of this anymore. I sat down to talk to you to get your opinion but you don't actually have any authority here. So I'm going to go make my movie. And he stormed out two days later, Gene Roddenberry died. Yeah. And I got to admit, I, I can't even imagine. Right. Cause you know, this guy's talking to his hero and he, he's talking to somebody that he really looked up to and he had to finally lay down the law. And then he dies two days later. They never got to reconcile. Yeah. And, and, and Meyer talked about, I really did not even begin to understand exactly how sick he was. Yeah. Well, I think they were keeping it pretty well under wraps at that point. Like he said that he looked sick, but that he's like, it didn't, I had no idea how much. Yeah. Um, so no, but the militaristic thing, because it is in my notes, one of the things that, that uh, um, are, are we talking about mothballing the fleet? Um, and then Cartwright makes the statement about dismantling the fleet, all based on the Klingon threat. This, this betrays a much much more militaristic era of starfleet now okay gonna go a little geek here the cnc i forget his name but it's bob it's that's not nagura nagura is no longer the cnc so my question is is a militaristic starfleet the result of the nagura era or was it the result of nagura leaving I think Admiral Nagura is just a ripe subject for a great series, Paramount Plus. Um, <laughs> I think there's some, it's an interesting point. I, I think it's more of a buildup to uh, a more militaristic style. Because if you look at the last few movies, they definitely were kind of building to that point and it was getting much more aggressive. Yes, yes. Um, you know, <laughs> while we did search for Spock, it is also important to note that Cartwright and Kirk had this extremely xenophobic conversation that culminated in I'm going to steal a ship. <laughs> right. And, but I mean, if you think about it though, it's that kind of thing has been around for a while and Cartwright has been allowing that, like, we're gonna, we're just going to run in military style. No, it's a, when you mentioned Cartwright, one of the things I found interesting was you mentioned the, uh, the racism that's, within the script itself and uh one of the accounts i read said that brock peters it took him a long time actually to get his speech out about uh klingons becoming alien trash because he really found it distasteful um mm. and it 
took him a number of times to be able to get the whole thing out. Well, that's that's Which, good to hear because it was. I, I got to admit, when I was listening for it, it's really bad. Yeah. Um, and he does a, um, he does such an excellent job of just making a realistic assessment from somebody from that point of view, from a militaristic point of view, um, where he basically says, you know, we bring them to your to their knees and then we dictate the terms. Um, it's it's a really really interesting uh, take, but excellent acting job by Brock Peters in this particular scene. Absolutely, and I mean that's going to be one of the last scenes he acts well in too. Um, <laughs> one of the questions I did have out of this though is what happened to Kronos? So Praxis exploded, Kronos is fine, and I understand that Praxis is their energy generation hub, but don't don't they have like generators? Like why is why is the entire Klingon Empire on its knees if they don't have this planet that or this moon that generates power? So the thing that Spock says is that their ozone layer is going to be depleted. On Praxis. I assumed he was speaking of Kronos because Praxis really doesn't exist anymore. So one of the reasons that I put this in here is because I really did not understand that 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 briefing when he was talking about that because he's like their ozone is gone who like we're talking about a galactic empire here they've got multiple planets so whose ozone is gone who's you know who's in trouble (laughs) it it really wasn't clear and i'm like well i understand trying to set up the story of helping everybody out and and trying to be there for our neighbors and all that but but why would Kronos sense. being destroyed completely wipe out the Klingon Empire when, again, yes, it's a multi-system, multi-world empire. Yeah. And while it would be a bummer to have to move, it doesn't seem like it would necessitate the dismantling of your entire governmental structure. Right? Like, I mean, later on, we're going to go to Rurapenta. Rurapenta didn't seem to have any problems related <laughs> to this. They had power, ozone. I, they, they didn't seem to get blown up. I, I don't know. It, uh, the whole thing <laughs> um so everybody is everybody's like okay screw it we're gonna do this and they all walk out and so once again we're back to kirk and spock uh we spock, spock delivered one of my new favorite lines um so this movie is full of human jokes that's, there's just no other way around about it. It's human, political, or cultural jokes. <laughs> and it's all made by non-humans. So when Spock says, uh, it's like my ancient ancestors said, only Nixon can go to China. <laughs> Great line. It, and it's one of those lines where I'm like, are they trying to make a Spock joke or, or like a Spock trying to make a joke or are they trying to <laughs> stick in something that like, you know, Spock's mom, she's descended from Nixon. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, it did. It did give a, a, a certain lift. I, I attributed it to the fact that it was a diplomacy joke and, you know, his dad probably, you know, heard a lot of diplomacy jokes in his career. Right. Um, it's kind of sad to think that the, uh, the, the most prolific politician that his dad had heard about from earth was Nixon. <laughs> he should have held out for a couple more years. He's going to get an earful. Um, 
so Kirk then <laughs> delivers his line that is the one that Shatner really did not like and was really pissed off about. Uh, and that is uh, let them die. And in the movie, it's let them die. And then we flash over to Spock, who raises a quizzical eyebrow, like, what's going on? When apparently the way it was filmed is Kirk says, let them die. And then he does some kind of hand movement or something to indicate like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. that. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. And they cut it. He apparently, Shatner was real pissed about that. And honestly, I think it's, it's one of the best points of the movie. Mm-hmm. It really sets the tone for the movie. Now, one thing that was supposed that they were trying to establish Kirk's bigotry um, because they'd cut out a lot of the early script that was supposed to tie into this. Um, Carol Marcus was supposed to die in this early in this movie. Uh-huh. And it was supposed to dredge up um, and basically be killed by a bird of prey that can firewall cloaked. And that's mm-hmm. supposed to kind of dredge up jim's memory of his son as well and that's what's supposed to give him kind of the impetus of i don't want to do this i could see that uh, um, and then since they cut all that out uh meyer kind of felt we need to really establish where he's at on this like solidly very quickly and i think that scene does it oh it definitely does because uh, there really isn't enough evidence to tell us that kirk is racist against klingons i mean there's only like 25 years of media about that. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, 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 I do think that it did help to set the scene a little bit. Um, I do think it, at times they went a little overboard with it. I, um, they kind of, they kind of turned Kirk into old angry white guy instead yes. of um, somebody who's got an ax to grind. Um, so I, I don't know. I, it, it does make his transformation at the end more powerful, though. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll grant you that. That's for sure. So, so are we going to talk about Valeris? Yes. So they head over to the Enterprise. <laughs> uh, incidentally, the uh, the next chapter on the DVD is labeled "Kirk Meets Valeris," <laughs> uh, which I mean, come on, it's Kim Cattrall. Woo! So. I'm sure you read a couple of these as well. I didn't realize that when Nicholas Meyer was actually the guy who, he, when he thought he was going to be directing Star Trek three, he wanted Kim Cattrall to replace um, Kirstie Savick? Alley to play Savick in the end. Uh, I didn't in know search that. For Spock. Um, and she was shooting something else at the time. I could not remember. Was it oh, a big police, trouble in little police, China? It was oh, a police, police academy. academy. That's right. Um, and so she wasn't able to do that. Then when the, he offered it to her this time, she refused because she thought it was going to be Savick. And he explained, no, no, we're doing a completely different character. And she was actually able to name the character herself. Oh, that's um, cool. One of the, the um, argument that you mentioned between uh, Meyer and Roddenberry, uh, one of the key points was uh, Valeris, or I mean Savick, originally in the script and betraying Kirk and Spock, which Roddenberry insisted Savick would ever do that. And Nicholas Meyer had to remind him, I created Savick, not you. I think I know the character I created more than you do. Oof. Yeah, which I did I, think that was kind of funny. It's like, how did Roddenberry get so attached to Savick? Right. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So Kim Cattrall was just coming off of uh, mannequin and big trouble in little China. Uh, so she was actually on her way up. Um, incidentally, mannequin is, I have a weird soft spot for that movie. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, no, it didn't. No. Did you ever hear about the, the, uh, the photo shoot scandal? Oh, no. Yeah. This is something I did not know before today as well. There is a unsubstantiated legend that um Kim Cattrall had a uh set of had did a photo shoot sans clothes but keeping the Valeris hair and ears on the oh. set of the bridge and when Nimoy found out about it he went off on her and forced her to to destroy the film holy now, wow there has been denials by both Nimoy and Cattrall Somebody pointed out, it's like, yeah, but her denial in one interview was, I can't talk about that. So that, of course, added to the conspiracy theory. So, again, unsubstantiated, something I didn't know, just shared some some internet trash with everyone. I uh, just read that today. That's crazy. I've never heard that one. See, I, I thought I was going to pull the deep cut because I remembered her from Return of the Musketeers. <laughs> Which I thoroughly enjoyed, by the way. <laughs> the girl from Porky's is a Vulcan now. Huh? <laughs> um, I will say her reactions are decidedly un-Vulcan. Uh, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. She's a fun character, but uh, Kim Cattrall is definitely not someone I would go to if I wanted to say, you know, show no emotion. Yeah, she, uh, she, she was the smirking, right? the smirking Vulcan. Which is funny because in any of her other performances, she's absolutely the go-to for you're completely wooden. <laughs> she played a mannequin for crying out loud. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I did find it a little weird that uh, uh, there was so much a Spock kind of patting her on the head. Uh, it was so I understand that Spock was trying to basically uh, develop her as his protege protege. Thank you. But he was trying to develop her as his protege and he was trying to, you know, hand her the keys. And I, I get that, but still, I don't There's know. a fine line between, between mentoring and, uh, and grooming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, like, Okay. So I'm going to skip something for a sec. So they, there's a scene with the two of them in Spock's quarters and he's like mixing his little ceremonial drink and talking to her about stuff. First off, I'm pretty sure my grandmother had that candle holder he was drinking out of, but <laughs> the, the way that it was just like, you know, you're going to come to my quarters. You're going to do my little ritual while I'm in my robe. Let's do it. And then they both drink out a little ceremonial cup. It just felt icky. Yeah. And the sad thing is I, I actually like the, uh, the dialogue. I, I love the actual dialogue to the scene mm-hmm. where she's asking about, uh, uh, about the painting, the Degal painting. And, and what I didn't realize is his response about faith is actually a, uh, uh, line ripped from Max Ehrman. If you're familiar with him at all, uh, mm-hmm. self-help guru from the seventies. So won't go into it, but it was, it was kind of bizarre to find that they ripped from that guy. Cause, uh, well, yeah, that's nice. Um, <laughs> but uh, and then the the line, the uh, uh, logic is the uh, is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. Yeah. Again, showing a a, a continuing uh, development of Spock 
as Spock matures even more and moves towards more towards the Spock we'll end up seeing in reunification. Yep. Uh, not soon after this. I gotta be honest. Spock is absolutely one of those characters that of anybody else in the entire uh, franchise, he grew and he turned into something completely different than what he started, but yes. in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. It, 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 the entire series all the way through uh, this movie. Yeah. I would totally agree that you get to see the, the character progress. And if you don't watch any of the next gen movies, Data did the same thing. If you watch the next gen movies, ignore everything I just said. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when they're on the bridge, um, they need to get out of space dock. So uh, they tell Savic or Savic, they tell Valeris to go ahead and take care of that. And she's like, okay, yeah, I've totally done this before. <laughs> so they get out of space dock and she's like, I've always wanted to try that, sir. It was just. It is, it is a great sh- shot though. When you're in the theater on the big screen, mm-hmm. when they move out of the door space dock and it goes from that confined view to the wide open starfield. Yep, that was actually a really well done. Uh, it, shot. it actually I, it reminded me a lot of um, the Wizard of Oz when they when they expand to widescreen and go to color. It, it oh was, yes, yes, right. It, it felt very much like that. Like all right, now we're really in it. It was kind of neat. And then immediately takes you out of it because the next shot is Scotty smiling and wait, that looks like Jordy LaForge's room, <laughs> right? He's totally at Jordy's workstation. Um, the, so what I did notice when I was watching this, the guy standing right next to Scotty is standing there with his jaw hanging open, absolutely <laughs> agape looking forward. I have no idea what he was looking at, but after thinking about it, I was like, all right, he just saw a 24th century warp drive <laughs> as they were warming up. He's like, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. But yes, it, it was pretty obvious that that one was the, was the Enterprise D engineering. And this is going to happen a lot in this film. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got lots of little notes about that one. Um, all right. So speaking of our racism trope, the next chapter in speaking of racism dvd is actually titled guess who's coming to dinner a line that michelle nicole's refused to utter sydney poitier would have kicked some serious ass <laughs> all right so basically the the enterprise has been given their marching orders they're going to go do their diplomatic mission so the chancellorship shows up um, they did a really good job of having Kirk kind of sweating through it. And he's looking out and he's like, I've never been this close to a Klingon ship before, you know, and everybody on the bridge is just kind of like, wow, it's right there. Like it's not shooting at us. <laughs> now, my only problem with this is they just spent two movies riding around in a Klingon ship. <laughs> so D class, right. <laughs> So this um, this ship is actually one of the original models from the motion picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, ILM dig dig it out and repaint it. And it's got the uh, little retool. feathers on the bottom. So that was a retread. However, when we look at the bridge of the Enterprise, the bridge of the Enterprise is actually a new bridge. This is not the bridge of the from the last movie. Yep. Come to find out, um, that's largely due to the fact that the old set got left out in the rain. Yep. <laughs> Oops. Everybody went, well, we're done making movies, right? Because that one sucked. <laughs> I'm not going to need this anymore. Put it out back. 
<laughs> uh, incidentally, that brand new bridge, really cool thing about that is it became the battle bridge for, for uh, the Enterprise D. I did not know that. It started out actually as the Excelsior Bridge. Yes, yes, it did. Got retooled yeah. and then retooled again. I did not know it was the Battle Bridge. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is, I found a site where you can see side by side. So they had the pictures side by side and one of them is Kirk sitting in his chair and there's a red alert going on. And then the other one, or excuse me, he does not have a red alert. The other is Picard sitting in his Battle Bridge chair and directly <laughs> behind them, you can see the door to enter the bridge and like the lights in the same spot. There's L cars up on the walls that are the exact same. <laughs> you know, it's bad when even the screen readouts are exactly the same. Speaking of which, this would be the first Star Trek movie that would actually use actual computer monitors. In the yes. And some of the graphics got way better too. Yeah. Uh, like the, when uh, the Klingons uh, in a future battle scene, the Klingons see two Federation ships on screen and they actually look like they're almost 3D. It's really good. Yeah. Um, so the Chancellor ship shows up. Uh, incidentally, it's named the Kronos One, um, which I, I guess the Enterprise should have been called Earth One, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm not really sure why they called it that. Uh, so Chancellor Gorkin is the first one to step out of the airlock. And it's our good buddy, David Warner. Yeah. David Warner. Uh, you may remember him as the human who wanted to see God in that movie that no one wanted to watch. <laughs> and if you, and if you're a precog, you'll see him in the future as, uh, as somebody mm -hmm. who torches, uh, torture, tortures Jean-Luc Picard. Yes. My favorite. My favorite. <laughs> there are four lights. <laughs> okay um so yeah they they invite the klingons on board um and uh Chekhov is the one who does utter the line guess who's coming to dinner so they they head into uh to the to the meeting uh for dinner and uh one of the things i, I did notice is for some reason there was a guy with a digital boatswain whistle i those things <laughs> But why? I, I understand you like the sound. Okay. But it's got buttons on it. Come on. They can't just play a recording. What? Is that that guy's only job? Like, it, Swenson, do you have your whistle? <laughs> yes, sir. Starfleet whistle, whistle Brigade. So when the Klingons show up, they do have fantastic examples of uh, unique ridges. This is one of the, th this movie, yes. I think really, they went for it. Like the last movie, they were, they were feeling it around. They were getting used to it. They were like, all right, we like this. This movie, they were just like, oh, what if it doesn't look like anybody else? It's just something course, weird. By this time, we'd had generation for a couple of years. So we had seen yep. uh, a very good uh, uh, array of Klingon foreheads. I still think <laughs> this one went kind of wacky compared to yes. even those. Yeah. Uh, I mean, General Chang's alone. Those are just odd. So they, tra they transport her into a room that oddly looks like the transporter room of the Enterprise D, except for somebody put a recording booth in it. Yep. <laughs> I actually, I, I read an article about why they did that. Um, so the original one had a window in it and it was a, re a refit as well. And they took that window out and they shrank the room so that they'd have room for the medical bay next door. And okay. then that became the Enterprise D transporter room. And then when it came time to make this movie, they're like, we're not going to build another one. We'll just refit the D room. 
And they're like, but we still got to put that booth in there. So they just brought it in and like the room is tiny now because <laughs> they did. They just wheeled it into the room and put it in place. And we're like, yeah, that's fine. Whatever. There, there's a lot of these, these set dressings that very much feel like, yeah, that's fine. Just yeah. <laughs> it's only going to be on the screen less than 15 seconds. We don't need to worry about it. Right. It's not like anybody's ever going to have access to a, a massive amount of data that they can just look at these pictures all day long and pick us apart for no reason. Who's ever heard of a detail-oriented Star Trek fan? <laughs> just uh, The Chancellor's daughter walks up. Uh, she's played by Rosanna DeSoto, uh, who incidentally is nine years younger than, than uh, <laughs> Warner. Um, interestingly enough, she was in uh, La Bamba very recently before this. And she played uh, Richie Valens' mother, uh, played by uh, Lou Diamond Phillips. And she is 12 years older than D Lou Diamond Phillips. <laughs> so she kind of got stuck in the middle a lot. <laughs> uh, so then the next one who steps forward is one of my favorite people of all of Star Trek, General Chang. General Chang. And it should be noted, he does not have Changnesia. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I was wondering which was going to approach it. <laughs> All right. So General Chang is played by someone who I'm pretty sure that in casting, they said Shatner's been chewing on the scenery for like 20 <laughs> years. We need somebody who can really just gnaw it. And they said, have you considered Christopher Plummer? <laughs> no, this is something that I read a long time ago. And again, I, I, I'm not going to vouch for the accuracy of this, but Nicholas Meyer had basically kind of wore Shatner out, just made him do take after take after take, because eventually he felt that when he was weary enough, he actually delivered a decent performance. And he thought, you know what? I'm pretty sure Bill caught on. I'm going to hire an actor who I know <laughs> Bill Shatner doesn't like all that much because uh, William Shatner and Christopher Plummer uh, worked together uh, earlier in their careers on stage. And uh, actually, uh, um, Shatner was the understudy to uh, to Plummer from King Lear. Uh, oh, wow. Um, in fact, uh, one thing I read said that uh, uh, there was one night Plummer went out sick and Shatner went on and did a fantastic job. And the next night Plummer came back and he said, because how well Bill did, that was the best performance I ever given in my life because I, I saw somebody else do it. And I was like, no, I need to step up my game. That just blows my mind that the universe gave us this gift that... Christopher Plummer and William Shatner didn't really get along that great because of their history doing Shakespeare together. <laughs> uh, one thing that is really interesting now that you've mentioned that is when I looked up information about Christopher Plummer, I was like, cause you know, everybody knows some things he's been in. So I wanted to look up some stuff to see what he was doing at that time and figure out like what his career was doing. He's done so much more TV than I thought he did. I, I oh, right? always, yeah, I always think of him as a, as a movie actor. Yeah. His TV credits are massive, so much more than his movie credits. Oh, wow. Um, and when I looked him up, he came up as quote, Canada's greatest thespian. <laughs> so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he and Shatner don't see eye to eye on that one. <laughs> So the doors close after all the Klingons march out of the transporter room. And the doors make the noise from the original series. They do. Even yes. though the hallway is clearly the Enterprise D. 
when when the doors opened and closed for the transporter room, that was straight up one of their hallways. Yes. Yep. You could see the whole thing. And I was like, yep. there's no modifications to that <laughs> at all. <laughs> so then they head to dinner. And dinner's in one of my favorite rooms, the Enterprise D Observation Lounge. <laughs> I will admit this one came up and I was looking at it. And I'm like, I'm 100% positive this is the Observation Lounge. I'm going to look it up anyway. Sure enough, it's the exact same room. Yeah. That room actually uh, also stood in for a couple uh, uh, bars in uh, TNG over the years. Uh, there was a couple stills I found where you can see the the lights that curve around the room and you can see kind of the, the shape of the room, but even though they put stuff up on the walls, but it's clearly the same room that's been turned into a bar. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, hey man, redress if you could do it. Right. I, I, well, honestly, later on when they do damage to this room, I'm like that redress was impressive. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, I didn't even think about that until I saw it this time. And it was just like, oh boy, yeah, they really blew the heck out of that. Right. Of all the rooms they were going to blow up, they're like, oh, you know that one we're using on a weekly basis? Let's blow that one up. <laughs> um, conference room, conference room out of order. Right. <laughs> so all the Klingons sit down to dinner, and there's this great camera panning scene back that goes backwards across the table, watching all of the Klingons as they pick up the napkin. Like, what is this thing? <laughs> yes. But I thought they did a great job with this, that this is a diplomatic group. They're looking at this going, I don't really get it, but I'm going to subtly look across the table and see what the humans are doing. And then I'm going to copy <laughs> that behavior. Yes. Yeah, I agree. The, a very well-directed scene. Absolutely. So then, uh, our, then the Chancellor Gorkon, he he's going to give a little speech. Um, he gives a great speech, and then he finishes with the undiscovered country. At which point, Spock notes the Shakespeare connection, and he does have to clarify because a lot of people look at the undiscovered country as being death. Mm -hmm. And so when he says it, he gets a blank response until he has to clarify the future. And then everybody raises their glass. Well, and also that, you know, this, this alien understands it more than the humans in the room. Yes. Right. I thought that was really good. Um, and then of course you've not experienced Shakespeare. And so you've read it in the original Klingon. Yes. And th one thing that really struck me was the one officer Klingon officer asking Kirk, I thought Romulan ale was illegal and Kirk quips back. Yeah. Well, that's the advantage of being a thousand light years from home base. And the look he gives them of kind of disbelief, which is something yeah. you would expect. The Klingons of Worf, Sarah would have laughed and smashed the cup on the thing. And instead, in this case, we see somebody who actually is a little shocked at the uh, laxness of, of uh, Captain Kirk. Well, I think that's something that's that's been a thread in the TOS movies too, is that they really set up, you have to think of them like the Vikings. The Vikings were people from Norway and Sweden and Finland, but they were the warrior class. They had a job to do, and that job was fighting. Everybody else still stayed home, and there were diplomats. There was, yes. you know, there were people who ran markets. There were farmers, right? All that stuff. There were defense thing, attorneys, right? Same thing with the Klingons. And the TOS movies did a really good job of setting up, like not everybody is warrior class. <laughs> and I think this scene is great for that, right? The guy looks at him like, did you really just say that to me? <laughs> <laughs> it's great stuff. 
Okay. So there's a couple things else that I found wrong with this conversation. They speak Klingon. If there's a universal translator that's translating everything automatically, how do they speak Klingon? Which, I mean, admittedly, it's a problem for me in all of Star Trek that every once in a while, the aliens just say something in their own language because they feel like it. And I'm like, hold on a sec. Okay, I I think the problem is, is that in this particular case, the Enterprise was running Universal Translator 10.2.1 when 10.2.2 had come out and they had not run an update yet. They needed to subscribe to Hoshi Plus. (laughs) If there's anyone who would skip software updates it's jim kirk that's true that's right <laughs> i'm not paying another 99 cents for this are you kidding me the federation and being labeled as a human club uh or the homo sapiens only club i get where they were going with the racist stuff i get where they were going with the 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 militaristic stuff and the the cold war era conversations but this really kind of it stung a bit because i'm like well hold on the federation like one of the points of this entire franchise is that the Federation is a place where it's a melting pot of everybody. It does give us a uh, a basic drawing thing of uh, humans and Klingons really don't like each other. And possibly the problem really between the Klingon Empire and the Federation is that basically just Klingons and humans don't like each other. Because let's also keep in mind the Klingon uh, uh, Federate last Klingon Federation war was started by two humans. We do have kind of a problem with that, <laughs> which um, leads me to my next one. Uh, Kirk flat out says, Oh, yeah, I heard that once before in 1938. Like, are you serious? You're gonna bring <laughs> Hitler into this? <laughs> All right, the Hitler one You're- I think was just way too far. <laughs> and this and for for our younger listeners this is a time before comparing people to hitler was really in vogue i mean now you know that's every tuesday but back when this movie was made it, it really wasn't thrown around that much that's true that was a pretty big deal for an insult and the fact that he had it loaded so quickly too Oh, I know, right? <laughs> he was waiting for it. You just had that one in the chamber, didn't you, Jim? <laughs> so they, they finish up dinner. Clearly, it's not gone well. They all march down to the transporter room. The Klingons go back home after, you know, uh, the chancellor is like, I really hope we can make this happen. Help me he out gives here, one man. of the best lines. Of, I really love this line. If there is to be a brave new world, will be our generation will have the hardest time living in it which is a beautiful line especially given what we're going through right now with a lot of the boomer mentality right the, yes the, the whole this quite Change frankly hard. we we have to be able to accept what's gonna what's gonna change around us and understand that while it makes us uncomfortable now it will be better later and I, I think that's a great line. And honestly, it's, it is one of those things that I wish that could be louder. Let everybody hear that, you know? <laughs> and the thing is, I, I thought it was a really interesting uh, moment also because this is coming off after a really bad movie, but a movie in which Jim Kirk says very loudly, I need my pain. He's very comfortable with the, uh, with the views that he has and so in this movie where he has to have that challenge to say, your way may not be the way that it is anymore. 
fantastic line whoever whoever wrote that line really really well done because it it really summed it summed it up very very well what the challenge was for for kirk and for anybody in this yeah. you know in this situation for the bad guys in the situation i guess um so the, the klingons being back home and I, I gotta say the scene that they do of the entire crew standing there and being like they're gone <laughs> I really love this scene, all the pomp and circumstances off, right? I really like that part of any situation and watching all of them just be like, oh, all right, I got to go sleep this off. I can't believe we drank that crap. I can't find a pot of black coffee, right? (laughs) So we switch over to the Klingon Klingon ship and things are are about to go a little wonky. (laughs) Uh, So... There is a shot fired that appears to come from the Enterprise, and it's a photon torpedo that hits a uh, Klingon with or a Klingon ship with no. What is that ship called? Oh, the Kronos one. Yeah, but it, the, the type of ship. Oh, it's a uh, uh, it's a Katinga class. Katinga. It's a, it's a some it's some sort of D class, but it uh, as it was taken from the model from uh, the motion picture, the yeah. motion picture those were Katinga class. See, calling something a bird of prey, everybody knows what that is. You say a Katinga class, and they're like, what? The one with the hat. Oh, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> anyway, so with the deflector shields down, it gets hit with a photon torpedo, knocks out gravity. Oh, no. Oh. We just refuse to put handles or seatbelts or anything around because that's never going to happen. Seriously, that's okay. In watching Enterprise over again, I got to say, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about it is that whoever designed these sets was like, all right, I want handles everywhere. (laughs) I want to make sure that if the gravity goes off, I can grab onto something. I want to make sure that I can climb in any direction I want. These new ships, they don't have that anymore. They're all about comfort, right? We're never going to need that. But also... If you're going to be a spacefaring race, don't you think maybe before you go on spaceships on a regular basis, you should be trained on what happens when zero <laughs> gravity occurs? <laughs> they always talk about anti-grav training, but in any time the gravity goes out in Star Trek, everybody's like, whoa, I don't know what to do. Well, when they Come talk on. about anti-grav training, they always talk about what a pain in the ass it is. So I don't, I think a lot of people are skipping it. You're probably right. <laughs> Then uh, as soon as this happens and they're freaking out because they're under attack, uh, two Federation uh, spacesuits transport onto the ship and they pull weapons and they start shooting everybody. Now, when they transported in, they transported into, uh, I believe it's a cargo bay for the D, for the Enterprise D. Uh, Um, Yeah. All right. They uh, walk into um, the chancellor's office, and I believe the chancellor's office is somebody else's quarters from Enterprise D. (laughs) Um, And they start shooting everybody. Now, they did a great job on the everybody's getting shot in zero G. And so as soon as they get hit with a projectile, they go flying back. And these guys are all with their, they, these guys have their mag boots on. I love it. I, it was so much fun. And then of course the Klingons are bleeding Pepto-Bismol. Yeah. I was going to say the, the bubble, this is where we first find out that uh, Klingons uh, blood is basically bubblegum. Which I don't recall seeing that in TNG. There's a couple of instances I can think of where their blood was very, very red. Right. But 
they reuse so many of the TNG sets for this movie. I now, the next time I rewatch TNG, I'm going to be on the lookout for pink spots. Because <laughs> you know that the set dressing guys were like, really? Did you have to do that? Because they splash that stuff everywhere. <laughs> Okay, so it was really cool though that they were they they really thought about what it would be like if it was zero G and that these would actually be globules and not you know blood splatter. And then when the when gravity came back again, everything splatted. It was really cool. I liked it. <laughs> um, I did think it was a little weird that the guy who turned on auxiliary gravity just kind of tapped a bulkhead. He didn't hit any <laughs> buttons or anything. It was kind of weird, but whatever. Probably could have given people more of a head up also than just you know right hey everybody guess what click i turned on gravity <laughs> damn it carl we've told you not to do that today is a good day for you to die okay so they go back to the enterprise bridge they're like what the hell happened boom they fire another photon torpedo wait we aren't doing this so they finally get in contact with them and they're and general chang is like what are you doing i knew i couldn't trust you Clearly you were treacherous, blah, 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 blah. And Kirk, without even flinching, goes, we surrender. I thought this was actually tactically really cool. Up to this point, you really had the feeling that Kirk was not down with everything that was going on. And at this one point, he makes a choice to try to save the situation rather than taking him out of the situation. Now, did Chang know he was going to do that? Or did Chang hope that he was going to fight? Earlier when Chang and Kirk meet, Chang says... It's really very good to meet you and, or it's really very good to finally meet you or something like that. And the way he said it, you definitely had that feeling of, I'm really happy to meet you because you're an interesting person <laughs> or it's about time I saw you face to face. Yeah. Right. And so I think honestly, it, this was his moment where he's like, you know what? I'm going to shoot this guy. I'm going to be the one who takes down James Kirk. And I think it was something, it was kind of a sign that something was really wrong when Chang decides to arrest them. Well, but I think that goes back to, this is, these guys are, are diplomats, right? They're going to, they want to make sure they follow the rules because they're speaking for a whole bunch of other people who can't speak for them, for themselves. And I think that their base training tells them that, right? So yeah, he's a general. Yeah. He's a warrior. But also he's been around the block a few times and he knows that he represents something bigger. And so I think it was actually a really smart piece of writing that he arrested them under Federation law, not under Klingon law. Like he could Very have been like, point. you know, I'm, I'm arresting you under Klingon law because you killed a Klingon citizen or whatever. No, he said, I'm holding you up to your own standards. Yeah. And so then they get to take that back to the president and be like, listen, he broke your law, not ours. We're doing everything above board here. Right? Totally. And I, I think that was done so well. That was a really smart piece of writing. Um, so after he arrests them, then we switch back to uh, Starfleet headquarters. And we get to meet one of our favorite people, Kamarag. <laughs> Played by John Shuck. Um, I, <laughs> I really like Ambassador Kamarag. He's the, he's the best. Because I, I love that Ambassador Kamarag is that guy who's always like, are we sure this is the right way to do it? I really think this was bad, guys. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I always got the image of it. You know, well, yeah, I'm a Klingon, but I really, really like earth food. I right? really like living here. <laughs> it's like uh, Thomas Jefferson hanging out in France. <laughs> <laughs> I will really miss my... Ugh. 
uh, but <laughs> they have hot dogs. It's kind of the same thing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so my only thought with Comrade though, is that at this point, there is no way this guy trusts humans, <laughs> especially Captain Kirk. There's no way whatsoever. If you recall the previous time we saw Comrade, he was saying that there will be a war between these two galactic empires because of one man. <laughs> And now that same guy just broke the peace talks with murder. <laughs> so we have the president of the, of the Federation played by uh, Kurtwood Smith. Kurtwood Smith. We love Kurtwood Smith. He's so great. Kurtwood Smith. Again, if you're a pre-gog, you'll remember him from uh, Voyager in the year of hell. Or as the dad in that 70s show, which explains why he keeps calling everybody dumbass. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So he, he delivers a great line. He says, you can't possibly believe James Kirk would assassinate Chancellor Gorkon. To which I say, are you kidding? The most racist guy of all the racists who has an ax to grind? Oh, I love I love the Romulan, the uh, Romulan response to, frankly, Mr. President, I don't know what to believe. It's like, <laughs> oh, you're just slightly, just polit- nailed politician right down to a T right there. Right? <laughs> And of course, the Oval Office we're looking at, 10 forward. Oh, that's right. Yes, it is 10 forward with curtains. <laughs> uh, with curtains. And then you see the um, the Eiffel Tower outside to show that the capital of the Federation is actually in Paris. That was actually uh, something that they did without telling Nicholas Meyer. It was a nod to him because originally he had wanted Star Trek Four to be centered around Paris rather than San Francisco. That's so sweet, guys. Thanks. So nice. Yeah, I totally forgot that wasn't ten forward. Uh, but they put up curtains and a lot of uh, uh, Louis the Fourteenth furniture, cool. which <laughs> seems really impractical. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're the president, you really don't want people sitting around your office too long. Yeah, but see, <laughs> I'm built like a human, and I gotta say, a Louis the Fourteenth chair is really uncomfortable. So I can only imagine if, you know, your joints are built slightly different or your butt's in a different place. Like that's gotta be awful. Um, so we, we take a quick jump back over to the enterprise and the enterprise is being commanded to get back here right Which, now. Oh, oh yeah, I love this because the scene of her, her with the earpiece in her ear and you can hear the little guy in there. Like, get back here, get back here right now. I'm not dumb on me. So, Kim Cattrall, uh, or Varys. Uh, Valeris. Valeris, thank you. Uh, delivers a great line that I got to admit, I looked it up. Sabotage. She's like, she tar- starts talking about the Dutch workers who would throw their sabot into the machinery and sabotage was born. Again, why is there only human stuff to draw from? <laughs> Nobody sabotaged anything on Vulcan ever? Humans mm. only understand human references. They don't understand anything but Earth. It's the allegory of America versus the rest of the world. That's true. You know, we just basically pay attention to what's going on here and have no idea what's the rest. She probably had a Vulcan proverb up there, up there in her head and said, yeah, you know what? Gonna go, They're not going to go this. way over there right. on that one. You know? So the chancellor's daughter... So we switch over to the Klingon ship where the chancellor's daughter has a phone call with the, the president. And she's like, we need a secure location for these peace talks because clearly somebody's going to assassinate somebody. And let's let's point out and displays exactly how volatile Klingon politics is because she's made chancellor. 70 years from now, females won't be allowed even to be on the high council. Right. Much less be chancellor. 
Well, so I was kind of curious about this too, because they don't really mention the high council in this. It's just the chancellor. So I'm kind of wondering, are we on that cusp of them building a parliament? Maybe she's actually the destabilizing factor that gets them to building a parliament. Yeah, because I mean, this is this is a far different situation than we see 40 years earlier with the with the oh. uh, Michael Burnham War um, and the the 13 houses and the and the correlation of 13 houses. And on I still and on don't and think on, that's so. canon. I'm sorry. I just don't think it's canon. Won't buy it, huh? I know, but I hate it so much. Anyway, <laughs> my brother's actually watching Discovery right now, and he's telling me, "Oh, I don't know why you say it's so bad. It's great." I'm like, "What are you? Where are you at?" And he's he's like, "Oh, I'm in season one." I'm like, <laughs> "Oh, you poor bastard! Get ready to watch a lot of goodbyes." One of the things that I loved about the Chancellor's daughter, though, is she has this conversation with the president. Before they hang up the call, one of her henchmen comes flying across the table, <laughs> lays out his plan and shouts, we should attack them while the president's still on the phone. <laughs> you idiot. I had not hung up yet. I didn't hang up yet. Dumbass. <laughs> All right, folks. So once again, we've rambled on far too long. So we're going to go ahead and cut it short here and continue on the next episode. So please join us for part two of Star Trek VI, Undiscovered Country. I'd also like to thank our friends over at Five Year Mission for the use of their song Beam Down for our intro and outro. Make sure you head on over and check them out at fiveyearmission.net where they do songs for each episode of the old series grouped into albums. Check them out. Lots of good stuff. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time.